Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today, we're beginning a new series on original sin based on Keegan Chandler's presentation from last year entitled Origins of Sin, The New Heretics and the Metaphysics of Disobedience. I'm excited about this four-part series for two reasons. First off, I'm glad to host a place where we can discuss genuine theological differences in a respectful and constructive way. So often in Christianity today, there's just not an opportunity for peer review. People put out different ideas, and there's no forum for honest-hearted critique. Well, here on Restitutio, we're going to do just that. Secondly, I'm excited because this is a really important topic that many of us have really not thought through very much. Oftentimes, until someone challenges our beliefs, we just go with the flow, and whether we realize it or not, that flow was determined long ago by Christians whose reasoning may or may not stand up to scrutiny today. In what follows, Chandler is going to present his case that the idea of original sin goes back to Augustine, who combined bits and pieces from earlier Christians like Cyprian and the Manichaeans. Now, I realize that some of you will not be very familiar with some of the individuals and groups that Chandler mentions in this talk, and that's just because Chandler primarily focuses on church history here. Not that that's the only thing he talks about, because he does get into Scripture towards the end of his presentation here. But I encourage you that if you do encounter a name or a group of Christians like the Encratites or the Manichaeans, that you would pause the podcast and look up what you're not familiar with. You can look it up on Wikipedia. It'll give you a nice little brief synopsis of this person or this group. And you can use that as a jumping point to do even more research if you're really interested. Chandler here takes a strong position. And that's why I'm so keen to provide a format where we can do multiple episodes in a series here on Original Sin and really delve into this subject altogether. What Chandler's saying here is that the doctrine of original sin is not native to Scripture, but it depends on the interpretation of a 5th century Christian bishop named Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you pronounce that. If Chandler is right, then all of us are born neutral without the stain of Adam's sin upon us. Furthermore, Christians, you, need to stop making excuses for sinning and realize that you can live without sin. You can't blame the flesh, can't blame a sin nature within, or anything like that. Assuming that you agree with Chandler here. Next week, I'll air part two, which is going to be Jerry Weirwell's critique of Keegan Chandler's presentation you're about to hear. Then, I have two more interviews where Chandler and Weirwell discuss this topic with each other at length. Also, I wanted to mention, I took a lot of notes on this presentation, which may help you navigate your way through this talk, as well as show you the spelling for these ancient Christians and groups in case you want to research them further. You can see that in the show notes for this episode or at restitutio.org. Here now is episode 321, Origins of Sin with Keegan Chandler. What is the doctrine of original sin? Throughout this presentation, 
Tonight, when I say the doctrine of original sin, I mean that doctrine, that version of original sin espoused by St. Augustine of Hippo in the early 5th century. Today, most Christians in the West, on the Catholic and Protestant side of things, hold to some form of Augustine's doctrine. Some groups, like Calvinists, believe in it. Other Christians affirm only parts of it. Others have denied the doctrine entirely. Eastern Orthodox Christians, for example, uh, do not believe in it. The Socinians, the biblical Unitarians from the Radical Reformation, uh, would be an example of those who denied original sin completely. Some of you today here may deny it, or you may not. And probably most of you think you know what this doctrine is, but may be mistaken. So some clarity is certainly needed here. I'm going to give you a simple definition of the doctrine for now, and out of necessity, a more detailed one later. The Augustinian doctrine of original sin is essentially this that each member of the human race has inherited sin from Adam in the sense that we have inherited both Adam's guilt for his sin and a corrupted will which compels us to sin during our lives. In other words, because of Adam's transgression in the garden, a metaphysical stain was passed on to each of us through our parents uh, so that we are born corrupted, we are born guilty. Even as babies in the womb, we are full of sin and guilt. And not only that, but this corruption has had a metaphysical effect on our human wills. This inherited sin has bound our wills so that we must disobey. We are free only to disobey. We are forced to sin by our nature. If you've heard someone speak about their sin nature compelling them to do something, that's where this comes from. And according to this doctrine, we will never completely stop sinning so long as we are in the body, even if we become Christians. Now, necessarily paired with this doctrine is usually the insistence that because man cannot naturally obey God, he requires God's unilateral intervention to save him. Uh, God must reach down and supernaturally change us metaphysically so that we are able to obey, so that we are able to choose God. Despite this change, however, according to this doctrine, we will never completely stop sinning. We will never completely stop disobeying so long as we are in the body. So sinning, even for the Christian, is ultimately inevitable. Now, needless to say, this is a doctrine which paints a rather pessimistic portrait of humanity, uh, a portrait of human guilt, of human inability. It's a doctrine which downplays and even denies any human role in the salvation process and ascribes everything to the radical grace of God. Now, regarding this Augustinian doctrine of original sin, many scholars have insisted over the years that Christianity, that is, Catholic or Orthodox Christianity, has always believed this doctrine about sin. Many have argued that, no, no, Augustine didn't invent this doctrine. All of the fathers before Augustine preached the same thing. But today's historical quest is to find out if this really is the case. Is it true that Orthodox Christians have always believed this doctrine about sin? And if not, then what did the Christians of the first several centuries actually believe? Now, some of you uh, may be wondering why you should care about this doctrine that I've just described, especially if you already disagree with it. Well, as restorationists, this is a historical inquiry of massive theological importance. There are many traditional doctrines which are connected to and even rely on original sin. 
Uh, and in reality, what you as a Christian think about original sin has tremendous power to shape what you think about man, what you think about God, uh, his character, his justice, and what you think about your own obligation and ability to obey God. So for those Christians who are interested in the earliest tradition, for restorationists, there are a few issues, I think, uh, beyond the primacy of original sin uh, that have such a potential to affect our worldview. Uh, in this slide, I think a few issues are more worthy of our time. But before I get started, I must tell you that we will not have time today to cover everything important to the study. We're just not going to have it. Uh, this must be a sort of part one in which we'll focus on the historical quest for the doctrine of original sin and which we will also take some time to review the famous uh, Romans chapter 5, which is usually used as a proof text for Augustine's doctrine. There will be much more detail in, in the book, that, can, that I can assure you. All right, but the first order of business tonight is church history. Indeed, this debate over the uh, Catholicity of original sin that I'll be introducing you today is by no means new. It was perhaps most dramatically exemplified by the historical conflict between Augustine of Hippo and Julian of Eclanum in a part of the dispute that is often called the Pelagian controversy. In the fifth century, Augustine vigorously defended himself against charges of theological innovation. It was not I who invented original sin, he said. The Catholic faith has believed in it from ancient times. Augustine's claim was challenged by many rivals, including Julian of Eclanum, who accused him not only of innovating, but of importing alien traditions about sin into the Catholic faith, namely those of the Manichaean Gnostics, which he alleged had been opposed by all of the Catholic fathers before them. This is not the same thing that the Catholic faith has believed from ancient times, Julian protested. This was inspired by the devil and uttered by Mani, the founder of the Manichaeans. Indeed, it is true that the Manichaeans had believed that sin was in the very natures of human beings and that it was passed on to human children through reproduction. Infants are full of evil from birth. Julian argued that the older Catholic fathers had not taught this, but had taught only the transmission of Adam's death to all of mankind, not his sin. Julian's charge against Augustine was bolstered by the fact that Augustine had been a Manichaean for nearly 10 years before his conversion to Christianity. However, it was also true that since his conversion, Augustine had become the most well-known and most vocal opponent of Manichaeism. So was there any truth to Julian's twin charges of innovation and importation? Or was Augustine actually correct in his claim that he had done nothing but faithfully repeat the Catholic teaching on sin? Fighting back against Julian, Augustine laid the charge of heresy at Julian and his allies' feet. Julian and his friends were the Noe heretici, the new heretics, for the radical denial of original sin. Augustine worked to prove this charge through his own historical research. His doctrine, uh, he was happy to reveal, had been taught by many of the ancient church fathers, even the whole church of Christ, he says. And to Augustine, not only did Catholic history support his view, to him it was anthropologically obvious and it still seems obvious to many Christians today. Augustine's doctrine to this day has remained powerfully convincing for many due to its ability to interpret the human experience. 
one look around makes it pretty easy to believe that sin is inevitable for mankind. Indeed, we are all very good at doing the wrong thing. And uh, seemingly from birth. Uh, sin seems not at all like, like language or arithmetic, something that has to be taught to us. Sin seems, dare I say, natural and all too easy. And indeed, it is hard, as has been said, to close one's eyes to the data of experience. Nevertheless, we cannot avoid the fact that the New Testament is simply brimming with instructions to Christians to stop sinning. This was Julian and his friend's argument. At face value, the New Testament writings presuppose that man can stop sinning. And Julian and his allies personally attested to the great freedom from sin that they had found in Jesus Christ. For them, the Christian faith and life was one of increasing moral excellence, of victory over sin and death, of newfound life and new identity in Christ. In their eyes, Augustine's view was one of human bondage to sin, antithetical to the preaching of the New Testament. Now, we'll return to this question of the New Testament in the later part of this presentation. But first, our central question about the primacy of Augustine's doctrine. Again, has the Catholic tradition always agreed with Augustine that human beings are compelled to sin by nature? That mankind, because of original sin, cannot choose God? Many modern historians and theologians have agreed with Augustine's self-defense. And a host of scholars like Augustine have pointed to figures like Ambrose or Cyprian and even the Apostle Paul as teachers of Augustine's doctrine. Rather than Augustine having invented the doctrine, they say that, no, Augustine only refined or developed or clarified an already present tradition. But how helpful are such assessments? uh, Historians of religion must be careful here. Too often in in studies of the doctrine of original sin, we have fallen squarely into the trap of imagining that the future which ultimately materialized was inevitable. Indeed, orthodox development narratives regularly speak of embryonic doctrines or seeds or the roots of orthodox doctrines being already present in older Christian traditions which needed only time or the opportunity to develop. But talk of any doctrine's growth or metamorphosis or development, ultimately breaks down and becomes inadequate. And that's because doctrines do not actually evolve or grow. They are replaced by doctrines which may or may not share some similarities with the uh, earlier teaching. Now, the reason why talk of seeds and roots of orthodox doctrines in church history has satisfied so many is because it's apparently true, but it's only trivially true. We must remember that doctrines are defined by their constituent claims. Just because a certain church father agreed with one or more of the constituent claims of a given doctrine, it doesn't mean he agreed with all of them or even with others. So we need to define Augustine's doctrine very, very carefully. After significantly fluctuating in his own views on sin during his Christian career, Augustine's final doctrine of original sin would be composed of the following 12 propositions. Now, we don't have time uh, to go through each of these propositions this evening. Uh, And to make things easier in our historical search for Augustine's doctrine, I'm going to focus on just a few of these claims, arguably Augustine's most characteristic and important claims, and claims which I think can reasonably describe the core of what makes Augustine's doctrine Augustine's. 
I want to focus on claims E, F, and G. And I can summarize E, F, and G for us as this. It's the idea that sin guilt is transmitted to every human being and that this transmission affects a binding of the will which forces man to sin. Okay? And my argument is this. If we cannot locate these most characteristic claims in the doctrines of earlier Catholic fathers, then we cannot reasonably conclude that they held to Augustine's doctrine. So we need to locate in Catholic history the teaching that sin guilt was transmitted to every human being, affecting a binding of the will which forces him to sin. That's what we're looking for. Does anyone before Augustine teach that? And we will begin by surveying the Greek fathers, the so-called Eastern Church. And I'll go ahead and warn you that this is only uh, a look at enough of the fathers that we have time for today. Um, but I think this should suffice for us. Okay, so the Greek fathers of the Eastern Church. Our survey of Greek thought begins with the Epistle of Barnabas. Written in the late 1st or early 2nd century, the letter puts great emphasis on personal responsibility uh, for the divine judgment that sin attracts. The writer warns his readers that God will judge everyone individually according to what they have done. He says this, quote, The man perishes justly who, having a knowledge of the way of righteousness, rushes off into the way of darkness. Now what Augustine has said is that we are rightly judged and rightly punished on account of our seminal presence in Adam when he sinned. We are judged rightly on the basis of what Adam did. But this seems to stand against that idea that we are considered guilty on the basis of an inherited sin. The writer teaches, in fact, that children are born innocent and without sins, he says. For Barnabas, it is clear that to adopt the Christian life is to return to the blameless state of our childhood. There is no doctrine of inherited sin in Barnabas. By the middle of the second century, the proto-Orthodox had come into serious conflict with Gnostic Christianities. Catholic leaders like Justin Martyr and his friends fought against Gnostic groups like the Marcionites and the Valentinians, and much of what Justin says about sin can be read through the prism of his decades-long struggle against Gnostic doctrines. Gnostics often tended towards fatalism. They de-emphasized human freedom and moral agency. Gnostics often insisted on the evil nature of human flesh. Humans did what they did, not because of their free choice, but because of the kind of, uh, of wicked fleshly matter that they happened to be born into. Sin was inevitable in certain people because of their nature. It was fated to happen. Against this, in his first apology, Justin writes, quote, We do not say that whatever happens happens by a fatal necessity. We have learned from the prophets, and we hold it to be true, that punishments, chastisements, and good rewards are rendered according to the merit of each man's actions. Doubtless one of the prophets to whom Justin is referring is Ezekiel, who says that God does not destroy the souls for the sins of their fathers, but rewards everyone according to their individual actions, Ezekiel 18.20. Justin also very clearly teaches that everyone has the power to do good or evil by free choice. So Justin demonstrates that the Greek church in the second century was very concerned with God's justice. They thought that Gnostic systems in which man was fated to sin by nature made a mockery of God's justice. Because if man sins by nature, then God can't hold him accountable for actions which he was born to do. 
To do good and evil must naturally be within our power if God is going to judge us for those things. So in Justin's view, well, what was it that humans inherited from Adam? Was it original sin or was it death? Well, in Justin's dialogue with Trypho, Justin says that Adam's transgression brought mankind under a curse. Ah, but what is the nature of this curse? The human race, he explains, from Adam had fallen under the power of death. This was the standard view in the Greek East. Mankind had inherited Adam's death, not his sin. And the Eastern Christians appeared to have learned this directly from the New Testament in Romans chapter 5. For Christians like Justin, Adam may have been the model sinner and the reason why the world is full of sin and death, but each of Adam's children are responsible for their own wickedness. The sin of Adam has not bound our wills. Thus, the essential claims of Augustine's doctrine are not only absent in Justin, they are vehemently opposed. Now, let's talk about the Encratites of the second and third centuries. Who were the Encratites? Encratites were Christians who were famous for their strong opposition to sexual intercourse, even for married Christians. In their view, the flesh was corrupt and inherently wicked. Interestingly, Justin's student named Tatian became embroiled with Encratite doctrines after Justin died. And eventually, Tatian goes so far as to say that married Christians who engage in intercourse are fornicating slaves of Satan. Now, why is this Encratite doctrine and the interest of uh, Christian teachers like Tatian, why is this interesting to our inquiry? Well, in 1978, scholar P.F. Beatrice demonstrated that the Encratite doctrine also included the belief that all human babies, though they have yet to personally commit sin, are born under a curse from Adam because of the evil nature of human procreation. On this basis, babies are born with sin and are condemned to die. As Beatrice demonstrated, many Catholic teachers slowly became enamored with these ideas from the mid-second to third centuries and had special impact in the Western church closer to Augustine's time. It seems not to have had as much success in the East, but it should not be missed that the first teachers in Christian circles to say these kinds of things come from incratite circles, from Gnosticizing circles, and not from the Proto-Orthodox or the Catholic tradition. But even in Tatian's day, in the late second century, we can see that Tatian's proto-Orthodox contemporaries did not follow him in his embrace of Encratite doctrine, and they appear to have maintained the earlier view of sin. Let's hear from a few of these Eastern fathers now. Militia of Sardis says that Adam left a tragic inheritance for his offspring, that Adam's sin paved the way for all subsequent human sins, as Paul says in Romans 5, but each of these sins were the products of individual moral agency. Furthermore, choosing God remains within our power. There is, says Militia, therefore nothing to hinder you from changing your evil manner to life because you are a free man. Likewise, Theophilus of Antioch said, if on the other hand, he would turn to the things of death, disobeying God, he would be the cause of death to himself. For God made man free with the power of himself. Athenagoras of Athens similarly wrote that men have freedom of choice as to both virtue and vice, for you would not either honor the good nor punish the bad unless vice and virtue were in their own power. 
ultimately, among the Eastern Catholics of the second century, we encounter a regular concern for the preservation of man's free will, for man's natural ability to choose God. Why? Why are they so concerned with defending this? Doubtless, this is due to the rise of competing Gnostic and Incratite theologies, which were challenging the Catholic tradition on these vital points. And nowhere is such a challenge more palpable than in Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria. In Irenaeus' famous treatise, Against Heresies, Irenaeus works to defend the world against Gnostic interpretations of scripture and specifically against Gnostic readings of Genesis 3 in which Adam is enthralled by cosmic forces. Now, Augustine claimed that Irenaeus specifically had taught his doctrine of sin. But what did Irenaeus really say? Well, Augustine liked to point to this quotation from Irenaeus. The sin of the first formed human being was corrected by the rebuke of the firstborn son, and we were released from the chains which bound us to death. In other words, Augustine has pointed out Irenaeus' agreement with him on his Proposition B, that Adam's disobedience caused all of his progeny to physically die. However, just about any Christian would have agreed with this particular proposition. And when we look at the rest of Irenaeus' beliefs, we find that he specifically denies Augustinian propositions D, E, F, G, and quite possibly proposition H. For Irenaeus, all men, in regard to their uh, ability to avoid sin, remain in the, uh, the same condition as the very first man. He says, it is in our power to do or to not do these things because man is possessed of free will from the beginning. And God is possessed of free will in whose likeness man was created. God has preserved the will of man and free and under his control. This is not merely in works, but also in faith. Now, despite Augustine and even modern scholars who claim that Irenaeus believed in Augustine's doctrine, upon closer inspection, since Irenaeus denies the inheritance of a sin nature, Proposition G, and he appears to speak against the idea of being condemned on the basis of inherited sin guilt, Proposition F, Augustine's historical claim that Irenaeus agreed with his doctrine simply cannot be maintained. Moving into the third century, Clement of Alexandria is interesting to us for his defense of the Eastern tradition against the sin concepts of Gnostics and Incratites. Clement argued against their insistence that all human babies were born with a bound will and a fatal necessity of sinning. He says, no, to obey or not is in our own power. And it's worth noting that centuries later, when Augustine defended his own doctrine as biblical, he relied largely on two Old Testament texts, two very famous Old Testament texts. Job 14.4, who can make the clean out of the unclean, and Psalm 51.5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And what's interesting is we learned from Clement that these were precisely the two main Old Testament texts used in Incratite circles to establish a biblical basis for their doctrine. And what's even more interesting is that Christians like Clement responded to these Incratite uses of the Old Testament in ways very similar to Julian and the Pelagians, Augustine's later opponents. Clement's successor in Alexandria was the great Origen, who has actually come under scholarly scrutiny in recent years for certain Gnostic leanings. Like the Gnostics, Origen interpreted Genesis 3 allegorically. 
He said that all humans had pre-existed in heaven, but had disobeyed during their pre-existent life in heaven, and they were forced to come down here and suffer the punishment of mortality. So he said that human death is a just punishment on the basis of humanity's heavenly and individual wrongdoing. And perhaps, he speculates, perhaps additionally the disobedience of Adam. Origen, he kind of plays with these ideas. He plays with this idea of Adam's sin, and his teachings on this are highly speculative, and, and he knows it. Uh, unfortunately, all we have of, of Origen's commentary on Romans is uh, Rufinus's uh, treacherous translation, but um, we can still learn uh, quite a bit. For Origen, ultimately, it is the transgression committed prior to our birth that has left each of us with a terrible stain. But again, the important question, what sort of stain? What did that involve? We know that uh, for Origen, humans are born with sin guilt. So on this point, he did agree with Augustine. Uh, and humans were also born with, with a propensity to sin. But did he agree with Augustine that all humans are forced to sin by nature? That original sin included the loss of free will? No, um, Origen is quite the standard Easterner here. Origen says that no matter what, for all rational creatures, the faculty of free will is never taken away. So while it may be true that Augustine and Origen have some overlap um, on the point of man um, being born with a, with a sin guilt, they, they think very differently about that sin. They think very differently about the effects that that sin had. Indeed, we are still left asking the question, where did Augustine draw his belief in the bondage of the will to sin? Even if Augustine had learned hereditary guilt from Origen, which scholars don't believe, uh, he could not have learned the bondage of the will from any Eastern father in the first three centuries. So where did it come from? Well, perhaps from the fourth century. Let's take a look. Well, perhaps unsurprisingly in the East in the fourth century, Catholic fathers continued to defend free will and the traditional views of sin against both Gnostics and pagans. In a terrific and revealing quotation, Athanasius warns Christians, do not think that evil is in man's very nature, which is what the heretics assert. Rather, they themselves are responsible for sinning. A scholar David Gwynn reveals in his recent study, Athanasius warns Christians against such ideas precisely because, quote, this was a teaching held by some Gnostic groups and also by Manichaeism. Now, Cyril of Jerusalem has a fascinating passage where he reveals that in his day, uh, his Gnostic and Incratite opponents were using, or perhaps abusing, Paul in Romans chapter 7, which would become a favorite text of Augustine's. Uh, in Romans 7, this is where Paul says, but if I do that which I don't want to do, there's this law of sin in my members warring against the law of my mind, etc. And Cyril says that were, there were people in his day who were using that passage to wrongly justify a doctrine of sin which included the bondage of the will. He begs Christians, in fact, not to listen to such interpretations of Paul. He says, listen not, I pray you, to anyone perversely interpreting these words. And he encourages them instead to remember Romans chapter 6, in which Paul says that we are to stop sinning. He concludes his defense thus, quote, Each human soul clearly has the power to do what it chooses. For you do not sin because you were born that way, nor if you fornicate, was it by chance? 
Finally, the last Eastern figure that we will mention, John Chrysostom, one of the most popular and influential theologians of his day. Almost as if he is refuting Augustine directly, he says emphatically that infants are not defiled with sin. And he furthermore says that no matter what happens, our free will is preserved. We are still able to choose God. He says this, quote, all is in God's power, but so that our free will is not lost, it depends therefore on us and on him. We must first choose the good, and then he adds what belongs to him. He does not precede our willing that our free will may not suffer, but when we have chosen, then he affords us much help. It is ours to choose beforehand and to will, but God's to perfect and to bring to an end. So in general, the East rejected key propositions of Augustine's doctrine of sin. Augustine's claim that the doctors of the East taught his doctrine, that they all taught his doctrine, is inaccurate. It remains to be seen whether Augustine will find teachers of his doctrine in the history of the Western Church. Now our survey of Western proto-Orthodox doctrines begins also in the late first century. We begin with Clement of Rome. Now, Clement, it is clear, he lays out no explicit doctrine of sin, but he does teach that people bring judgment on themselves by their actions. Hereditary sin is nowhere mentioned in Clement, neither is the sin of Adam in the garden, and Clement's unqualified teaching on individual culpability leads us to believe that he had no doctrine of original sin akin to Augustine's. Of course, this is not surprising, given Clement's early date. Now, the West, like the East was entangled in controversy with Gnostic doctrines of sin from at least the early 2nd century onward. The success of teachers like Marcion and Valentinus provide good examples of how thoroughly Gnostic thought had taken up residence in the Catholic world by the middle of the 2nd century and had already begun to color Western anthropology and Western exegesis of Scripture. A major text for Valentinian theologians was Romans chapter 7. For the Valentinian Gnostic, Romans chapter 7 meant that the human will is bound to sin. That because of the evil contained in our hereditary matter, that man is unable to choose God. Only God's grace can res rescue us from this impossible situation. That's how the Valentinian Gnostics read Paul. Of course, we cannot help but recognize the affinity that such Valentinian readings have with Augustine's later use of Paul. The proto-Orthodox in both East and West before Augustine tended to disagree with such readings of Paul, and they instead stressed the freedom of the human will. But Western theology, it is true, developing more on the periphery of the Catholic world, appears to have felt more directly the impact of uh, popular Gnostic readings. The proto-Orthodox tradition of Northern Africa to which Tertullian was introduced had already exchanged blows with heterodox movements for decades and by this time was already heavy laden with Gnostic and with Incratite influence. But still, our question, do we find Augustine's doctrine in Tertullian's writings? Well, Tertullian did believe in a theory about the, uh, the propagation of the soul called Traducianism. The idea that we were all present uh, in Adam's loins in the garden. 
But contrary to Augustine, Tertullian taught that the only just punishment is that which is meted out on the basis of individual action. While he thinks that we did receive an impulse towards sin, a tendency towards sin, this received impulse that we all got, uh, no matter how strong it is, for Tertullian, it is ultimately resistible. He says this, no reward can be justly bestowed, no punishment can be justly inflicted upon him who is good or bad by necessity and not by his own choice. And contrary to Augustine, he insists this, he says, man is free with a will either for obedience or for resistance. Now, later, Augustine would teach that because of inherited sin, babies who did not get baptized uh, before they died would be damned because of this inherited guilt. That's the, his reasons for infant baptism. But, ter, but for Tertullian, the stain inherited from Adam was not in and of itself a sin that needed remission. Baptism, he says, is for adults. It's for the removal of personal sins. He says that uh, uh, Christians should be baptized when they grow and they become competent to know Christ. Now, while I believe that Tertullian did develop some dogmatic language which would uh, play a role in original sin's development in the Latin church, uh, as scholars have concluded, Augustine's doctrine is essentially foreign to Tertullian. Now, Augustine, in his self-defense, Augustine famously cited several Western teachers as the direct source of his doctrine. He said this, my teacher is Cyprian, my teacher is Ambrose, and not only have I read his books, but I heard his words when he spoke them. And I admit and state openly that in this matter of original sin, there is no difference between me and Ambrose. Now, Augustine also later cited Jerome as his inspiration, as his teacher. And we know also that Augustine read the writings of a figure whom we call Ambrosiaster, uh, who had a very famous Latin translation of Romans. Uh, so we'll now com uh, consider the opinions of these four teachers, Cyprian, Ambrose, Jerome, and Ambrosiaster. Well, Cyprian, he lived a century before Augustine, and indeed, he had said that infants, when they are baptized, have sins washed away that are not their own. And so with such passages in mind, Augustine would say that Cyprian expressed his own doctrine. And no doubt, Augustine is right to say that he gathered much of his thought uh, from Cyprian in developing his own doctrine of infant baptism. And it's also important to note that Cyprian, in his letter on this subject, is evidently not speaking um, just for himself, but actually on behalf of a council of uh, 66 African leaders, which had recently ruled on this matter. Now, while on the one hand, this seems to speak to an official consensus um, in Carthage, on the points of hereditary guilt and the reasons for infant baptism, it also reveals the ongoing controversy over such doctrines in Africa, right? And what it does not do, of course, is demonstrate an African, much less a Western, consensus on these subjects before that point. As we've seen, Cyprian's own predecessor, to uh, Tertullian, uh, Cyprian loved Tertullian. He called him the master. He would read his scrolls and say, bring the master to me, right? He loved him, but even Tertullian had attacked such doctrines of infant baptism, right? And, uh, and it's ultimately important uh, to note, as uh, Yaroslav Pelikan observed, that among the Proto-Orthodox, Cyprian's letter 64 contains the first explicit linkage between original guilt and the salvific effect of infant baptism. So, we'll give it to Augustine 
on this historical point and on this historical point only about Cyprian having taught the inheritance of sin guilt before Augustine's time. But what about the bondage of the will? Well, Cyprian himself makes several references to crimes being committed of human free will and to things lost and gained by the exercise of free will. He lays out no doctrine of the will's bondage to sin. So Augustine is thus uh, able to only identify part of his doctrine in Cyprian, namely that guilt is transmitted uh, to infants, which requires infant baptism. What about the other Western figures who Augustine claimed as his sources, Ambrose, Ambrosiaster, and Jerome. Let's start with Ambrose. Uh, Ambrose did believe in hereditary guilt. He said that all, human, all humanity was present during Adam's fall and that they contracted guilt and concupiscence. Now, concupiscence is a strange word. It means strong sexual desire or lust, right? So both he and Augustine said that uh, before the sin in the garden, there was no sexual desire, right? So uh, procreation would have been just like shaking hands. There was no desire involved. And so the sexual desire that you have in and of itself is an effect of original sin. It's a punishment, a divine punishment given to you. For Ambrose, sexual intercourse, therefore, was deeply sinful. And it was so sinful, in fact, that all humans produced by it were born in the sexual sins of their parents, now, Augustine was doubtless right that a good deal of his thinking about sin and its consequences had been shaped by his instructor, Ambrose. Yet, once again, conspicuously absent from Ambrose's teaching is the corruption of the human will as an effect of inherited sin. Nevertheless, I should point out that Ambrose does demonstrate a sort of pessimistic view of human ability. He emphasizes the idea that everyone sins, and there's this apparent uh, tension in Ambrose uh, between his own belief in free will and his belief that people will inevitably keep, uh, fail to keep themselves from sin. Despite all this, however, it is clear that Augustine did not learn his doctrine of the bondage of the wills and effect of original sin from Ambrose. Okay, next, very quickly, uh, the identity of the mysterious Ambrosiaster uh, is still unknown. He wrote his Latin translation and commentary on Romans uh, between 366 and 384 uh, while he was in Rome, and this Latin text was relied on very heavily by Augustine. Augustine famously used Ambrosiaster's translation of Romans 5.12 to support his doctrine. But scholars now agree that this Latin text of Ambrosiaster's carried an important and erroneous translation. It said that, quote, death spread to all men because all sinned in him. Your modern versions will not say in him. The thinking here, the implication, death spread to all men because all sinned in him, means that all sinned in Adam. But this is not what the Greek says. And we'll talk more about Romans 5.12 in, in a little bit. But from this, we can see that Ambrosiaster, in this text, he did teach that all humans had sinned in Adam's loins and thus contracted sinfulness. But for now, we'll talk about the rest of Ambrosiaster's theology. What's very often uh, been missed about Ambrosiaster is what the great Alexander Soter already noted in the early 20th century, which was that Ambrosiaster, quote, was relatively nearer to Pelagius than to Augustine. So he's regularly, he's actually nearer to Augustine's opponents, Julian and Pelagius. Unlike Augustine, Ambrosiaster believed that it was possible for man to gain favor with God and that obedience was requisite for salvation. 
Hereditary sin, yes, is a wound. It's a wound that causes us to stumble in our flesh, but it cannot ultimately condemn us to eternal judgment. We have thus not inherited a true sin guilt worthy of damnation. We've inherited a propensity to sin. And furthermore, Ambrosiaster preserves free will despite this sin. So, lastly, Jerome. What about Jerome? Well, there's certainly a good deal of overlap between Jerome and Augustine. Uh, while Jerome did say that infants are born with this corruption of filth, and while he did describe post-fall man as weak and as wounded, uh, Jerome nevertheless maintained, in contrast to Augustine, the traditional Catholic doctrine of free will. Even in Jerome's own treatise against the Pelagians, Jerome nevertheless makes it clear that human free will is preserved despite the fall and that its exercise towards God is our responsibility. For Jerome, man can still choose God. Jerome has no problem attributing to mankind a very important role in the salvific process. God is the one who calls. Man must respond in faith. So in this area, Jerome also is much closer to a Pelagian soteriology, if you want to call it that. So the Western fathers, they tended to have a more pessimistic view of mankind and human procreation than their Greek counterparts. But there was no consensus on inherited sin. And none of the Western fathers who Augustine summoned in his historical defense taught his characteristic bondage of the will as an effect of original sin. So where did Augustine get this tenet of original sin? We will now uh, directly test the claim of his rival, Julian, that Augustine, in his final doctrine of sin, had imported Manichaean views into the Catholic faith. Let's take a look at that idea. Okay, Manichaeism. What is Manichaeism? We might want to address that first. Who are these Manichaeans with whom Augustine studied for 10 years before his conversion to Christianity? Well, like other Gnosticizing groups, Manichaeans uh, taught a highly developed dualistic worldview. They emphasized the continuous battle between spiritual good and material evil. In the Manichaean view, sex and procreation were negative activities which only trapped divine souls in the bondage of hereditary corruption. Indeed, humanity, in their view, was polluted with evil from birth. Sexual desire is a byproduct of this evil, and its exercise only perpetuates an evil cycle. Sex is an evil act, and the human will is enslaved to evil, which compels all of us towards sin, even against our deepest wishes. The Manichaean teaching on sex and the lenient treatment of Manichaean disciples with regard to sexual sin must have appealed to Augustine, who famously struggled with sexual sin. In his celebrated book, The Confessions, we find, as one scholar reveals, that sexual desire played a central role in Augustine's life. He referred to himself prior to his conversion to Catholic Christianity as a slave to lust. He represented his conversion as a commitment to continence, the female personification of sexual renunciation. Nevertheless, he experienced an ongoing struggle with his sexual passions long after his conversion. It's not difficult to imagine how liberating the Manichaean doctrine of sin must have been for the young Augustine. 
He admits that in his own struggle with sin, he did not want to think that he himself was responsible for his failure. He, he did not want to think that it was his fault. No, there must be some evil force uh, controlling him or forcing him to do these things. And the Manichaeans told Augustine that he need not be too disappointed in himself. They explained that his situation was the fault of his material state. And so drawn to these ideas and to others, Augustine spent a decade as a Manichaean disciple. And after being a Manichaean for 10 years, Augustine was finally persuaded by the Catholics, and he converted. He was finally baptized as a Christian, as an Orthodox Christian, by Ambrose. And thanks to his intelligence and his speaking ability, he was soon elected bishop and quickly began to exert massive influence over the Western Church. Now, it is of the utmost importance to note that when Augustine first converted to Christianity, he initially abandoned his Manichaean views on the will. And he took up the traditional Catholic views on free will. Why did he do this? Well, obviously because this is what he learned from his Christian teachers upon converting. Prior to 412, Augustine did not yet think that man's hereditary stain included the bondage of the will. As a Catholic convert, he initially stood strong against his Gnostic opponents and against his former Manichaean brothers, who were all arguing, as he himself once had, that man was incapable of choosing God and requires God's radical grace to unilaterally save him. Again, the Manichaeans, like other Gnostics, famously used the writings of Paul to argue their views. Yes, the Manichaeans used the writings of Paul. And Augustine, as a new Catholic convert, would have initially uh, resisted such interpretations of Paul. However, we know from his writings that after much debate, and only after much debate with the Manichaeans, Augustine finally abandoned the traditional Catholic position on these points. According to his own testimony, he gave up on traditional free will and reverted back to his earlier stance on this point that he had held as a Manichaean. And he ultimately writes in his retractions of his earlier works, I have tr tried hard to maintain the free choice of the human will, but the grace of God prevailed. Augustine's Christian opponents, like Julian and his allies, perceived that Augustine, with this move, had only brought Manichaean concerns in with him when he converted. But as, his, as good historians, we must ultimately ask whether we agree with the basic charge of Julian that Augustine was a Manichaean in regard to his doctrine of sin. Is that true? Obviously, Augustine rejected that idea, but let's see. Well, there clearly were many differences between um, Augustine and the Manichaeans. For example, for Manichaeans, there had been no historical fall which corrupted human flesh and changed some of its properties. Rather, the material world was inherently evil. Good and evil were eternal and diametrically opposed principles. And Augustine loved to point out his differences uh, with the Manichaeans on these points. Nevertheless, despite their disagreement on the origin of evil, their significant agreement on the effects of evil on the human will are ultimately unavoidable. 
When we return to the constituent claims of Augustine's doctrine, we find that Manichaeism offers the most robust and direct source for the principles which Augustine demonstrably did not gain from his Catholic tradition. Indeed, the Western teachers who first welcomed him into Christianity uh, had already been influenced by the Incratite tradition, but they had modified Incratite tradition so they could, th they could still teach the freedom of the will, they could still have positive views about marriage and things like that. Uh, so Augustine's teachers could teach him all of the propositions here except propositions D, E, and G. So these propositions D, E, and G well, these are the Incratite and Gnostic propositions which the Western fathers who had taught Augustine had already purged and cleansed. However, we must deal with the fact, as Jason David Bedoon reveals, that during his Christian career, Augustine rapidly and inexplicably shifted to a position much closer to that held by the Manichaeans, hardening and reifying mere habit into something fundamentally disintegrative to human moral agency. So I will now argue that since Augustine did not inherit uh, such teaching from the Catholics, he is found to have inherited it from the Manichaeans. And I argue this on the basis of the fact that, A, Augustine initially abandoned such thinking upon conversion from Manichaeism to Christianity, and B, that Augustine changed his mind about free will and reverted to the Manichaean view and their Pauline justification for it only after re-engaging with the Manichaeans in very serious debate on this topic. Indeed, Augustine admits that he had tried very hard to hold on to the Catholic doctrine of the freedom of the will, but he was unable to. And this change took place only after his new Catholic beliefs were severely tested in debates with his former Manichaean brothers. And so in this light, Julian of Aclanum's charge of importation, when we narrow it down to the area of sin's effects on free will, appears to stand. Augustine imported views about sin's effects on free will from his Manichaean past. And it's clear to me that Augustine made room for Manichaean concerns by abandoning the specific reading of Paul that he had been given by the Catholics. But it is not true, let me point this out, it is not true, as some say, that Augustine invented original sin out of thin air. The constituent claims of Augustine's doctrine had existed long before. But his doctrine was innovative in how it stitched Gnostic, Manichaean, and Catholic claims together in a coherent system that was neither entirely Catholic nor Manichaean. But, how is it that so many Christians in the West came to accept this sort of doctrine? Well, there are many, many reasons why original sin won in the West. We could point to Augustine's eloquence or to the political lobbying of his allies with the popes and the emperors, which happened, or to the marriage of church and state under Constantine and the changing socio-political context and the needs of Christians. We could speak all night about these things, but I will speak only to very one simple reason for the sake of time. For many Christians, Augustine's doctrine was simply more appealing than the earlier tradition. Practically speaking, Augustine's doctrine essentially made living with sin easier. We remember that Augustine had, had described his struggle with sexual sin as one of enslavement and shackles. His own battle with sin was a grand failure. 
Now, where earlier Catholics would have told him that this is a personal failure, Augustine instead projected his own experience as a paradigm for all humanity. Augustine could not imagine that he or that anyone else truly had the power to control themselves. And doubtless, many Christians felt the same way as Augustine, and still do. Indeed, many Christians today can hardly imagine having mastery over sin, even in light of the many inspiring and empowering New Testament passages to the contrary. Indeed, the writers of the New Testament may have offered a light burden, but Augustine offered an even lighter one. As he himself acknowledged in his struggle to reconcile with his own moral failure, he did not want to imagine that he himself was at fault. No, there must be some other force, he said, overpowering his will. Thus I see that Augustine's doctrine dispensed with human liberty in one sense, but it enabled a human liberty of another sort, a certain freedom of conscience. Sin was no longer a shocking personal failure. No, disobedience was the very necessary and unsurprising byproduct of circumstances entirely beyond our immediate control. For three centuries, Catholic tradition had prevented Christians from simply accepting their personal failures as facts of life. Indeed, the earlier Christians had urged believers to achieve the seemingly impossible, living the life of Christ in a fallen world. Now Augustine's anthropology provided Christians a path to reconciliation with their own failure to live the life that a disciple of Jesus should. And to this day, we hear Christians in the West refer to themselves as simultaneously sinners and saints. I'm just a sinner. They will say, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a sinner resting in the grace of God. Of course, the New Testament says we are saints. Paul himself says, once you were these things, once you were sinners. And speaking of Paul, I know what you're all thinking. What about Romans 5? Doesn't Romans 5 prove original sin? Today we don't have time for a thorough study of the book of Romans. We will have to save that for the book or for another time. But I think we have just enough time to engage with at least three points. Inherited sin in Romans, uh, Romans 5.12, and obedience in Romans. Okay, so first, in the book of Romans, inherited sin, we actually find that in sharp contrast to Augustine's view of the guilt of children, Paul demonstrates a view similar to modern doctrines of the age of accountability. In Romans 4.15, Paul says, where there is no law, there is also no violation. Of course, God's law is everywhere all the time. So he must mean that where there is no consciousness of the law, they're not guilty of violating it. Small children, uh, the mentally handicapped, uh, must fall into this category. Without the presence or the knowledge of the law, Paul says that sin is not put on the ledger. Romans 5.13, sin is not reckoned as transgression. In Romans 7, 8 through 9, Paul says that apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Paul seems to describe his reaching of the age of accountability when he became conscious of the law and of its consequences. Before this time, sin had no power 
but afterwards, the, the sin of the deeds that were in his life became alive, and it was then that he was condemned. Okay, now what you've all been waiting for, Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12 was Augustine's most critical proof text for original sin. It says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's the NASB there. Now, Augustine, and many still today, think that this passage simply and obviously proves original sin. But let's take a closer look. We are going to uh, begin by considering Augustine's exegesis. Now, it's well known that Augustine, uh, following the poor Latin translation of Ambrosiaster that we talked about, it's well known that he read the Greek prepositional phrase, ho as uh, in verse 12, as in whom, in quo omnes peccaverunt. In other words, he read it that each man had somehow already sinned in Adam. But scholars have concluded that this is a catastrophic mistranslation. Today, quote, scholars virtually unanimously accept that the, that the Latin is not a faithful translation of the Greek. Furthermore, in this same verse, Paul clearly says that through Adam's actions, sin came into the world. Adam was the first to sin. Sin entered into the sphere of human experience through his transgression. But Paul says nothing of sin coming into every human being through birth. Now, according to the modern translations, according to the majority, vast majority of modern translations in the West, uh, the Greek here is best rendered in this way. Death spread to all men because all sinned. Again, most of your English, your, your Western Bible translations that you're going to come in contact with, they mostly um, translate it this way. And this translation seems to say that people die not because they were in Adam, but because they sinned individually, because all have sinned. That's why they die. But is this translation best? Well, I find that exegetically there are actually still problems with this. This reading actually continues to prop open the door for Augustinians because it connects the fact of individual sin to individual death. Augustinians assume that all human death is a just punishment for individual wrongdoing. And so humans must be guilty from birth on the basis of the fact that all human beings physically die and many die as small children. If death is a just punishment for wrongdoing. Ah, and look, this baby died, right? Well, he must have had sin, okay? So see, this translation still opens that door. So it makes me wonder if this really is the best in light of the history that we've studied. Is this our only option? Well, there's always that hidden third option, right? It is possible to translate the Greek prepositional phrase as because, but there is another way. It's also possible to translate Paul's F-ho as with the result that. With the result that all sinned. Death spread to all men with the result that all sinned. And this is actually precisely how even modern Eastern writers still understand it. And I believe this is actually our best choice. Death spread to all men with the result that all sinned. Now, what this translation would indicate is that it is the death 
spread into all men that immediately gave way to sinning. It was not Adam. So the F-ho here refers directly to the preceding, the immediately preceding subject, death. It is not that we all die because we have all individually sinned. Rather, it is because of death that all sin. As Eastern scholars like John Meyendorf have pointed out, quote, F-ho, if it means because, is a neuter pronoun, but it can also be masculine, referring to the immediately preceding substantive thanatos, or death. Now, the sentence may have a meaning which seems improbable to a reader trained in Augustine, but which is indeed the meaning which most Greek fathers accepted. As sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men, and because of death, all men have sinned. And there are indeed good grammatical, exegetical, and historical reasons to abandon both the Augustinian reading, because all sinned in him, and even the most popular Western reading, because all sinned. Grammatically speaking, Paul regularly uses the Greek epi with the dative as a relative pronoun which modifies a preceding subject. I have a few examples here. Um, and there are numerous examples from Greek literature which support the plausibility of this reading. And exegetically, this reading is far more helpful than the modern reading of because all sin. Look, that, that Romans 5.12 is speaking of the transmission of Adam's death to all men, not a sin, is supported also by Paul's parallel teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 21-22, in which he says this, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So what did Adam do? universally for everyone. Adam shut the door to immortality for the whole human race. He kicked us out of the garden, which resulted in death and sin for everyone. What does Christ do? He opens the door to life for all humanity. As in Adam, all die. Not as in Adam, all sin. Not all sinned in him. As in Adam, all die. At first glance, however, such a rendering may sound a little bit odd. How does death lead to sin? Though this is what the East has believed, it does sound odd to our Western ears, doesn't it? Unfortunately, we don't have enough time today to give this subject the treatment it deserves, but I'll uh, provide as clear an explanation as I possibly can in the time that we have left. First, I want you to think about this. Like the rest of the animals, God gave us certain survival instincts. These are impulses towards self-preservation or selfishness, if you will. God gave us these inclinations. He gave these inclinations to all creatures so that they can survive on planet Earth. We need them, right? They are not bad in and of themselves. Now, God also gave us the impulse to pursue happiness. The desire for happiness is not a bad thing. It was given to us by God uh, so that we would uh, seek uh, fellowship with him and with our families so we can have good lives, etc. Now, both the impulses towards survival and towards happiness are not bad, but God wants us to keep them in check. He wants us to keep them under control. This is what Torah and training is for, to teach us how to live good lives. Now, mortality, death, mortality exacerbates these impulses. 
our mortal corruptibility, knowing that we are going to die, greatly amplifies our urge towards both selfishness and towards happiness and increases the possibility that we will not increase, uh, that we will not keep those God-given urges in check where God wants them. Think about it. An immortal being has no need of food, of water, shelter, or anything. But a mortal being whose time is very short, for him, the draw of selfish ways of living is increased. His desire for the means of sustenance is increased. And mortal beings will inevitably come into conflict with one another over those means of sustenance. We will be pressed to pursue the means of sustenance at all costs, if only to extend our lives a little bit longer. Now, not only are our survival instincts amplified, so also is our impulse towards happiness. An immortal being living in fellowship with God as he designed would know ultimate happiness. Everything else would pale in comparison. But as mortal beings who are outside the garden and separated from God, who know we are going to die, we are pressed to pursue our own happiness and as much happiness as we can manage in the shortest amount of time. Hence, greed, infidelity, theft, lying, and all the rest. These are the concerns primarily of a mortal being. An immortal being may have all the time in the world. He may have uh, no needs of the means of sustenance. Uh, and living with God, he, he would probably know true happiness. But the mortal being seems trapped. Think of the non-Christian. Think of the non-Christian who doesn't know the gospel. Why does he have this seemingly impossible struggle with sin? It seems to me that it's because he can't imagine anything more valuable than the means of sustenance or of his own happiness. There's nothing more valuable, nothing more important than the means of sustenance and my happiness. Now, he may intuitively know, per Romans 1 and 2, what the right thing to do is. But as long as he is ignorant of the gospel, he doesn't seem to have a practical reason to keep his impulses towards survival and towards happiness in check. It seems best to him to let those impulses just continue to run wild. For him, selfishness seems like the best way to have the best life possible. So in this light, we can begin to see how mortality encourages sin. Mortality increases our propensity to sin. As Theodore of Mopsuestia wrote, by becoming mortal, we acquired greater urge to sin. And for Paul himself, while it is true that he says that the wages of sin is death, which is referring, I think, to the permanent, to the second death, he also says that the sting of death is sin. Human sin is a byproduct of death's hold over humanity. Mortality breeds sin. So how, according to Paul, is it that man is released from this bondage? Paul's answer to the problem in Romans 5.12 is spelled out several verses later in Romans 6. He says that God, through Jesus Christ, has set us free from sin and death. In Romans 6, he says, that it is specifically through the knowledge of the resurrection, through the good news that death has been defeated. Indeed, if you read Romans 6, 4 through 11, it's the knowledge of death's defeat through Christ's resurrection, knowing that we will also live with him. Verse 8, this is what encourages us to live better and more righteous lives. 
Indeed, if we as sinners knew the real power of the resurrection, if we knew that death had been conquered, then the draw of selfish ways of living would recede. This knowledge inspires us towards the pursuit of holiness and away from the pursuit of bodily survival and away from the pursuit of happiness. When the mortal man who is ignorant of the gospel cannot see the value in giving up his selfish ways, since they are to him the only means of survival and happiness, the convert, on the other hand, the convert, knowing that Christ's resurrection has significantly changed the conditions of survival, he is able to reorient his value system towards holy living. Indeed, immortality for Paul changes everything. It is the crux of not only the Christian hope for the future, but of the Christian's present faith in life. Now, in Romans 7, I believe that Paul portrays the plight of the pre-conversion Gentile. He says, I know the good I ought to do. It's, right, it's written on my heart and mind, but I don't do it. I sin. Why? Who will save me from this body of death? This is the impossible situation of the mortal man who is ignorant of the gospel and of the resurrection. But when Paul says, who will save me from this body of death, he doesn't stop there. Paul doesn't stop there. Who will save me from this body of death? He says, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the end, we see that it is the good news of salvation from death that enables us to do the good we ought to do. Because now we have very good reason to do it. The believer now has good reason to abandon the pursuit of survival, to abandon the pursuit of happiness, uh, and to keep his impulses in check because he knows that there is something much better waiting for him if he does that. He knows that if he lives righteously, then God will be pleased and will award him with true and lasting survival, with true and lasting happiness. So he will be truly empowered to stop sinning where he might not have been before so that he can enjoy what he was created to enjoy. Ultimately, where mortality breeds sin, the power of the gospel, the promise of immortality, breeds righteousness. And I believe that such an interpretation of the book of Romans, while sounding odd at first to our Western ears, harmonizes much more naturally with the other New Testament instructions to Christian converts to stop sinning. And of course, with the historical understanding of the majority of the Greek fathers. In fact, this reading is still the interpretation of the Eastern Orthodox Church to this day. But at the end of the day, the bottom line is this. We should not use the book of Romans to support Augustine's doctrine of original sin. Remember, in Augustine's system, man will never stop sinning so long as he is in the body. Sin is inevitable, even for the Christian but we need only turn to other passages in the same book of Romans to locate Paul's rejection of Augustine's stipulations about the will. In Romans 6.12, for example, Paul plainly instructs Christians. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting yourselves, uh, the members of your body, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. 
So for Paul, whatever sin dwells in the members of the body, accumulated through a lifestyle of sin and through wicked habit, despite Augustine telling us that Christians will never be able to stop sinning in this life, Paul writes, are we to continue in sin? May it never be. How shall we who died in sin still live in it? Paul's consistent instructions to the Romans are clear. Do not let sin reign. Do not go on presenting. Do not let sin be your master. Die to sin. Put sin to death. These are not the commands of a pastor who gives any charity to sinfulness. He makes no room for sin, and he demands that his students stop sinning immediately. Any tension felt in Romans 7 between the law of sin in my flesh and the law of good in my mind, it evaporates elsewhere in the epistle. In Romans 8.13, Paul says that if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if you live by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body. If you do that, you will live. Despite the severity of the inner conflict over sin, and despite Augustine's insistence that Christians will never stop sinning so long as they're in the body, Paul says we are new creatures. He says that we are new creations in Christ even now. He commands Christians to lay aside the deeds of darkness and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. It is clear throughout Romans that for the Christian convert, the law of good in man must triumph over the habit of sin in our members. We are not to be conformed to this world. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Surely the transformation that Paul has in mind here is total and complete, not partial, not leaving any room for the old wickedness. Of course, despite these clear instructions from Paul, and despite countless other commands throughout the New Testament to stop sinning, thanks to the history that we surveyed earlier, original sin in various forms continues to loom large in the Western world. In hindsight, the magisterial reformation of Calvin and Luther was really the triumph of Augustinianism. And through this Protestant influence in the West, to this day, many Christians will find it shocking that any disciple of Jesus presumes that he can stop sinning. But this was not always the case. More than a millennium and a half has now passed since Augustine first persuaded much of the Western world that his doctrine of sin was homogenous with the earliest Christian tradition. But it is more than time, in my humble opinion, that historians and theologians alike abandon Augustine's history of religion in favor of more critical assessments, which rely less on fallacious assumptions, on contrived theories of providence, and orthodox confusion narratives. To conclude, in light of our history, it is now easy to see the so-called Pelagian controversy, the controversy over original sin. It's easy to see that as the swan song of moral excellence in the West. Likewise, the triumph of original sin looks like the justification of moral mediocrity. But in looking at the past, I cannot help but think about the future. What sort of new history of sin will modern Christians decide to write? In the end, it is up to each one of us, as restorationists, to decide which tradition, the Augustinian or the earlier Eastern model, that we will allow to arbitrate our sense of sin, what it is, its origins, and ultimately our Christian obligation to do what God says.
Thank you. Well, I hope you were able to follow that. It is certainly a long presentation with a lot of detail, but it is extremely well presented. And I encourage you to check out my own notes if your mind is a little hazy right now and you need a reminder of what was covered in what order. And if you strongly disagree with what Chandler said here, I encourage you to come on to restitutio.org and have your voice be heard. Just find episode 321, Origins of Sin, with Keegan Chandler and drop a comment. Also, check out other Restitutio podcasts that I have done with Keegan Chandler, if you're interested in him. Also, he has two books out, The God of Jesus in Light of Christian Dogma, as well as his more recent, Constantine and the Divine Mind. I've got links to those in the show notes for this episode. You can follow Chandler at his Buried Deep blog, as well as his God of Jesus website, or read his scholarly papers on academia.edu. As I mentioned, next week, Jerry Weirwell will be here to discuss and critique the presentation that you just heard, so stay tuned for that. Now, before closing out, I just wanted to read out a couple of comments that recently came in. The first one that came in was from episode 319, How to Get Better at Evangelism with Josh Anderson. And this was from Cheryl Ross, who writes, Sean, thanks so much for the evangelism series. They are great. What else is living by the Spirit each day if it's not thinking about the person in front of you, listening for God's direction, and following through in obedience? Amen, Cheryl. Thanks for writing in. It's always encouraging to see when an episode resonates with somebody. And I, I know from the podcast stats and from previous experience doing evangelism workshops and classes and seminars that this is a topic that most Christians are not interested in. Uh, they would rather avoid it like the plague, and yet it is an important part of being a Christian. And I, for one, was just so blessed with Josh Anderson's positive attitude and what he shared in his experiences in being a missionary in Japan, which is just such a secular environment that uh, really translated well to helping helping me think through my own personal life, and I hope it did for you as well. So if you haven't listened to that yet, go back and listen to How to Get Better at Evangelism with Josh Anderson. Also, I've got a comment in from way back, Podcast 43, uh, which was my father's sermon called Identity Theft, one of his most classic sermons in my personal opinion, and I've heard a lot. And Janet writes in saying, This is a 10-star sermon. I've listened to this at least 40 times. I was never a Trinitarian, but wish every Trinitarian would listen. Love all you guys. Well, Janet, I didn't even know there were 10 stars to be given, so that's really impressive. (laughs) And uh, 40 times, wow. Um, I bet you can quote it from memory better than I can quote Spaceballs, so uh, good for you. It It is a powerful sermon, definitely a powerful sermon, not for the faint of heart. Probably better to spur those of us who believe in a Unitarian Christology more than something to share with somebody who believes in the Trinity because there is no, (laughs) because this is a bold and strong declaration here, but uh, definitely worth you listening to if you haven't yet. Go check that out. Podcast 43, Identity Theft with Vince Finnegan. Well, that's it for this week. If you'd like to support Restitutio financially, you can donate at restitutio.org. Thanks to those of you who have already done that. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.